The Bonfires of Social Enterprise with Detroit-based Rami Gingrass of Gingrass Global. On this episode of The Bonfires of Social Enterprise, we check back in with Gary Hendrickson from the Welding Artisan Center. Welcome, Gary. Good morning, Rami. Hey, we're looking forward to getting an update. What's been happening since the last time we spoke? We had our annual board meeting, which is always exciting because we have a lot of talent on our board of directors. And then we also invite advisors and influential people to be guests for about a one-hour roundtable discussion before we have our actual board business. When that happens, it's uh, it, I call it a whack attack. The Welding Artisan Center, we sometimes abbreviate to just whack, and when something exciting happens, we call it a whack attack. So we recently had that and got some input from some great new collaborators that we did not have before. And uh, in fact, today we're going to take another walkthrough of the building that we're looking to launch the venture with some new talent in the way of architects and construction managers that are going to be assisting, some of them even volunteer basis, on helping us getting up and running. So you've located the building. We have. We, we have our sights on it. We still have to go through some hurdles with the city council approval and the building itself being classified as a surplus asset for the city so that it can be sold. It's a little bit different than a private real estate transaction and a little more complicated, but it is the perf it's the ideal location and facility. So we're pretty excited about it. What makes it ideal, Gary? Well, there's a couple things. The the first criteria we had on our selection was it had to be a building that was publicly accessible by bus in Detroit. You know, we don't have a train system to speak of. Uh, and bus is the only way for people who don't own cars to get to places. So this particular location is right on a major artery that is easy to reach from a lot of neighborhoods in Detroit. So that was the first thing. The other thing being perceived to be safe so that if a, if a person is arriving by bus, the walk from the bus stop to the location has to be patrolled or well-lit uh, or well-trafficked so that people feel safe coming. Those were the two things on, on the location on a map perspective. The other thing is the actual size and layout of the building. Uh, you know, we have three parts that are going to be in this center. We're going to have an innovation gallery where we show off the artisan-made goods, the actual welding labs, and then the third part being this fabricating center. And the building, it's as though it was designed for us. Parking space, The it's right across from the bridge from Canada, so the uh, the subtleties of having having exported products made, uh, handmade in Detroit by welding artisans, all of those things. I mean, I couldn't, these were bonuses we didn't even plan on at this particular location. So we have to be careful not to get too excited until we, until we get it acquired. But uh, we're pretty high on it. Oh, wow. That's exciting. That is beyond some of the initial punch list that everyone was looking for. I know that. Can I hover back for a minute on this transportation issue? I've mentioned this several times to folks that don't live near Michigan or Southeast Michigan, Detroit area, that it is common to try to center a location near the potential employees or uh, social mission beneficiaries. For this reason alone, it's not, especially if you're trying to help some of the neighborhoods get employed. You really do have to get somewhat near to them so that they can get to work. And even the bus systems, there's got to be a bit of grace there because while they're making a valiant attempt, it's still 
they still can run late at times, and sometimes employers don't understand that really the bus really did not come by <laughs> for three hours. Can you speak a little bit more into this transportation issue as a business owner? Well, you hit the nail on the head with uh, having some grace for those who are taking bus transportation, because that is a, a service that's beyond our influence or control. We have to uh, accept the fact that some of the candidates that are coming in for training, as well as employment in the fabricating part of the business, if they are 10 or 15 minutes, minutes late, or in some cases up to an hour late in Detroit, we have to have special consideration for them. What makes it tricky is that because these are disadvantaged people and we're trying to instill in them, sometimes for the first time, maybe it's reinstilling in them values that they were told about before, about being punctual. And if, if a class starts at eight or your job starts at eight, that means you gotta be there at 7.30. So you have that built-in cushion for the late bus but even that still has some loopholes. So we have very rigid code of conduct and behavior that in it includes this punctual aspect, but we have to be flexible as we try and be rigid, if that makes That's a total contradiction, but that's kind of what we have to deal with, as do most employers in Detroit that employ disadvantaged audiences. Yeah, I think it's just setting that expectation. And as we talked before, the culture of the organization holds its own weight, if you will. <laughs> Right. The other the thing that's kind of unique to Southeast Michigan and Detroit in particular is the high cost of owning a car, because a lot of uh, people outside observers might think, you know, if these people are serious about getting trained, they'll get a, a jalopy and be able to drive it to and from the place for their training, as well as to and from the workplace after training. But the insurance expense alone in Detroit is probably two to three times higher than any other market in the state of Michigan. And so you have your registration costs, your insurance costs, things that people that don't have, uh, that have been historically unemployable, these are major hurdles for them. And it is not, it's not an easy problem to solve just by providing them a car, because even if you go to one of these volunteer donation services that provides a fairly reliable car for a low price, that insurance is just almost unaffordable. Yes, in many cases, it's more than the cost of the car. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for spending a minute there because that is one of those subtleties that business owners need to consider when they are setting up shop in Detroit. Let's also go back for a minute to the timeline. Uh, one of the things that really surprised me as I started to work, I'd say more concentrated in the Detroit market about three years ago was really this timeline of having a commercial space released. Sometimes it can go what seems to be supernaturally fast and everything lines up. And in other cases, if you find a building in this case, it can take quite a while to go through all of the pieces, longer than people think, uh, to grab the building. And even though it's available or it might appear available, there's a lot of things to go through to obtain that building. Will you talk a little bit about a few of those things that might have surprised you, given uh, your, your history in other communities? Well, it was just a couple of months ago that Detroit exited from bankruptcy. So if you look at the timeline, there are kind of three periods of time. We have the emergency manager period, even before bankruptcy. Then we have the bankruptcy period that just ended, as I mentioned. And then we have the post-bankruptcy period, which is where we are right now. 
in the particular building that we are trying to acquire, uh, we're in touch pretty regularly, like once a week to get a status report from the real estate professional that is retained by the city to help them with their backlog. And he told me just the other day, this acquisition process for a for a city-owned building, and there is a lot of that inventory in Detroit, would typically be two years. And they're trying to them now expediting would be two months from the time of a proposal being uh, given to consummating a deal and getting it approved by the city council. Their goal is to get it to two months. And that's in contrast with a period before that would be two years and also involve a lot of corrupt dealings, as you may know from past city uh, administrations. So the, if you look, that's our most recent period. During the bankruptcy, there were actually some deals that were done pretty quick. Uh, and I, we don't need to spend too much time on that because that is history now, thankfully. Uh, but there were some city-owned assets that moved quickly because of the bankruptcy process. And then prior to that, the emergency manager period, there were also some deals that were done because the emergency manager was granted some authority that a mayor wouldn't even have. So that's kind of where we are on timelines today. And in terms of just regular real estate, commercial real estate, apart from city-owned assets, it kind of follows that track because you still have the building permit process and the approvals of the use of the land and of the property. And you know what I mean? It's a, it's a similar bureaucracy, bureaucratic steps to go through. Well, thanks for spending a minute on that. The reason I wanted to go back and just talk about that for a minute is it is an actual reality for social enterprise and really broader businesses in Detroit, which has gotten leaps and bounds better than what it was, thank goodness, to a lot of well, well-intentioned people trying to clean it up and, and stand it on its feet. But for you, I know you've been ready for well over a year. You and your partner, Don, have been ready for well over a year. Fully studied, researched, had all of the social mission outlined and had a plan, lots of experience. And really, the stopper has been almost the building. And so you've been so patient walking through, but it is for you specifically has been somewhat of a barrier up to now. And now it looks like you're able to cross over. Right. And just one more aspect on that that's relevant maybe to your listeners. We resisted hiring a real estate broker because we, being trying to be the most affordable organization in the world, wanted to try and avoid brokerage fees, if at all possible, and just have a retainer that's working on a pro bono or low cost basis to help us with the transaction. But we broke down and, and hired a broker just because we were finding on our own, we were, we were just not making the headway. But then even after we hired the broker, we discovered you know the other roadblocks that are there, squatters that are holding on to property that they think is gonna be worth three times what it was worth during bankruptcy. And so, you know, you go look at a shelled out terrible building that's going to need half a million dollars of work done to it, and an owner wants over a million dollars for it. Squatters might be a derogatory term, but there is a lot of that that still is going on in the city. And what's behind it is the actual owners of these buildings will see people driving around looking. And so they, they get their hopes up, and there is some substantiation for for the idea of speculating uh, on the value of these properties increasing rather rapidly. The opportunities with the residents and the neighborhoods and these the potential participants of the program. If you don't mind, I'd love to hone in on 
what I see is an issue, and I know you've identified, is some of the, specifically the young black men, we don't see them owning their own businesses. And one of the tracks of your program is not only will they be able to be trained as a welder, but they will have an opportunity, if so inclined, to take an entrepreneurial track and perhaps open up their own business. And, boy, if there's one thing I don't see very many of is is it's young black men owning businesses in Detroit. And I know it's on your heart as part of the program to help solve that. Boy, that's a huge topic. We could we could spend a lot of time on it, so I'll try and boil it down to some of the critical things that we see. And I just spoke with someone the other day. I think I mentioned to you Bobby Smith, who is who is focused on this very problem and developing what they call accelerators to to advance the cause of young black men specifically on this entrepreneurial pathway. And as he's looked at it, he he believes that a big part of it is just the self-esteem of those individuals because it's hard enough to get their self-worth restored uh, having been in poverty and below the poverty line and in, in, in bad neighborhoods and broken families and foster care. I mean, it's they're coming from a jungle that's that's pretty unattractive. And I'm generalizing here on this particular audience. Not everybody in Detroit comes from those circumstances by any means. But just to get their dignity to a point that they think they're a valuable uh, maker, that they can they can produce something of value and earn a decent wage, that's a big leap by itself. But then to have them actually be thinking, you can own your own business, that's a next big leap that kind of from the very beginning, we want to start instilling that idea that so when they come in for the first day of training and orientation, we'll be telling them, you know, some of you will just become plain old fashioned artists that want to work with their hands and make creative stuff. And, and the, the, the utility of the item is irrelevant. It's just a matter of pure art. Some of you will become uh, skilled artisans in the workforce. And then some of you will become entrepreneurs. And so at the very beginning, we're going to plant that seed and nurture it and give them, you might call it field trips or whatever, or we might have people come in that actually own businesses. There's a company in Detroit that makes ornamental ironworks. It's a female-owned operation, and I think they have 15 to 20 uh, fully employed people that have welding skill making these extraordinary products and show them so that they can actually see this is a real pathway. And here's a a minority-owned business that the, the fact she's a female is just kind of a bonus because that's another one of those audiences we want to attract and have them come in and shed light on it from the very beginning. We have to get their dignity to a point where they they believe they are worthy of running their own business someday. And Gary, do you believe that comes from not only setting a vision but walking alongside of them perhaps when they make a mistake or being there to encourage them? Absolutely. I, I think the hands-on part is, is going to be huge so that when we see uh, an artisan, maybe they're making a new bike rack that they envision selling to the city of Detroit. As the city becomes bike friendly, this young artist sees an opportunity, designs something, makes it, says this was pretty successful, but he didn't have any sort of plan for, well, how could you duplicate that? If your big vision is to you know, make a hundred of these in a one-month period, have you thought about what the costs are, what the economies of scale are? And that's just a conversation you have to have. And if they give you the deer in the headlights look, then you know that they're not familiar with those topics. 
And then that's the invitation to say, would you like to know more about that? And then we team them up with mentors that can come in and say, you know, that making a business successful is definitely challenging, but the steps are pretty simple and just break it down for them and do that one-on-one. And, you know, we're not going to replace what community colleges and businesses, business schools do, but we can certainly nurture that so that the, if the artisan is, is peaked in an interest in that, we can put them on a pathway that includes those resources so that they have access to what they need to be successful business people. I know from our opportunities we've had at Gingress Global to work really around the globe, there's one common theme that always sticks out to me and I'm consistently reminded of for all of us, no matter what background we've come from, relationships are important. Mm. Relationships, encouraging relationships are important. And whether we remember it or not, no matter what what place we've come from or situation, somebody came along somewhere and offered a hand when we were down. There's a lot of hands available when somebody's on a fast track or having success. But amazingly, there's not always a lot of hands reaching out when you feel like you're in a pit. <laughs> and there are times when uh, you're starting as an entrepreneur. We all know this. I'm a serial entrepreneur and spent my career working with them. There are just those times when those relationships are sealed and it makes all the difference when somebody's hit a low on their journey, which is normal to hit a low when you're an entrepreneur. You're probably going to hit a whole bunch of them. But to have somebody walk alongside you when you're exploring something or you've had a just an epic fail, which I can say I've had about 10,000 of them, there's been someone there going, oh, Robbie, you know, you're going to be all right. And that person is so meaningful at that moment. It's just what I needed and I get up and keep going. And I find the culture that you're setting there is going to have wild success, is my suspicion, because of this. Lots of whack attacks coming out of the Welding Artisan Center. Oh, I hope so. You're, and if I could comment just briefly on how we're going to more specifically address that artist artisan uh, mentoring process. A lot of times the word mentoring just carries with it so much weight and responsibility that it, it makes people shy away from becoming a, quote, mentor. And I understand it because I'm in that same boat. When I've looked at big brother, big sister programs, I think, ooh, that's too much responsibility. I can't, I mean, I, as many flaws as I have in my life, I can't really be a mentor to somebody. So as we go about this and, and I talk to people that, that, I would, that would be potential people to come alongside the artisans, we intentionally call it artisan development. So if I meet a construction manager that works for Domino's Pizza and he's got a, a very successful record in business being a construction engineer, and I say, hey, would you like to help with some of these artisans that need nurturing and, and a friend and an ally? They'll say, yeah, well, tell me more about it. We say, well, you would be an artisan development person that would come in, spend some time with some of the students, find out which ones have an affinity with you and your specialty, and then the same thing with ex-felons, uh, the same thing with young entrepreneurs. Bring them in as artisan development you know, volunteers. And then that becomes a little bit more, I guess, less daunting of a responsibility. But it does exactly what you described, you know, just coming along and staying. It gives a chance to, de- to determine where are the relationships a natural fit. It, it happens by uh, exposure and having people come in and spend time with the artisans. So I think we're going to be able to address that issue successfully, and I'm, I'm sure we will learn a lot as we go. <laughs> yes, and I think 
sometimes we we need to remember that we're all human beings at the end of the day. You know, we're not a bunch of robots that are going to move through an assembly line and all of a sudden we're, you know, perfect. You know, just like time heals all wounds, time builds experience. You know, I know 26 years later, I know a lot more terminology and things seem normal to me that didn't, you know, when I came right out of school. Just time builds that experience, time builds the confidence, and for both the mentor and the Welding Artisan Center participant, on the last podcast that we did on you, we talked very generally about the Welding Artisan Center and what your concept was. We didn't talk too much about this because we were hoping to come back, but you started out as a non-profit structure because it was so heavily focused on this very early stage training and certification. But the plans are to move the participants into either their own employment, as we just discussed, or move into for-profit jobs. So there's this whole other for-profit element of the Welding Artisan Center. There's a for-profit component that they could potentially move into, continue certification. Let's Talk in for a minute how you can combine this profit and a purpose. The third part of this project that we call the fabricating service is where we can take the artisan that comes out that does want to be employed as opposed to being an entrepreneur and put them into the work experience that's going to be needed to add to the training certification to actually land a job that they have a chance of keeping So the fabricating service will be purely for-profit. It'll be housed in the same facility, but it'll be a very distinct space so that we can comply with the IRS rules on how you share assets, both tangible and intangible. And then as an artisan comes into that environment and they work at an hourly wage of, say, $12 to $15 an hour, and then they come out of that and go into employment with Well, we've identified about 50 different companies in Southeast Michigan that will hire trained welders. And they will have, I would say, a period of three to six months working in the fabricating shop before then they go out and work for one of these other, um, the ornamental iron company I mentioned, for instance. And that's our, our plan right now. Some of them may stay employed right there in the fabricating service if they have a particular skill that the fabricating business has contracts for. Let's say that there's a a particular piece being made for the M1 rail, and we're set up and we're producing it, and it requires some hand skill that is kind of unique, and we have a welding artisan that comes in and does the job, and it's an ideal fit. It may be more longer term than just three to six months because it will be profitable right there. And so that's what that fabricating part will be, where they can be employed for work. Gary, I always like to talk about the elephants in the room. (laughs) Gary, when you go out and you're talking to potential employers of these welders, you know, it's obvious to you and I that some of the participants and the students coming through might have criminal backgrounds, or it might be a returning citizen, uh, perhaps out of uh, a long-term correctional facility with a record. Are you finding yourself in conversations uh, about either nervous or um, concerned about hiring even a trained welder? And I guess I'm not talking about the folks who are already bought on to the, the mission of helping those less fortunate with another choice. I guess I'm talking about the potential employers that they might be very first considering this. And while they intellectually know it's a smart idea to be helpful, 
they would naturally maybe have some concerns of, gosh, how will this affect the rest of my employees? Do you find yourself at all in those conversations? Yes. And when we talk, uh, when I talk to those individuals, and I'm not a subject matter expert on reentry initiatives, which ones work, which ones don't, what the formula for success is. So our approach to that will be to collaborate with people from the state reentry initiatives department. Uh, it's a unit of the Department of Corrections. And then actually have on our team, uh, there's a young gentleman that we've identified that uh, was at this last board meeting at the round table. He's been incarcerated for 24 years and he got out two years ago. He's employed and he's also consulting on reentry initiatives because he did make such a successful transition from 24 years on the shelf, as they call it. You come out after 24 years, you know, when you went in, there weren't iPhones and laptops and all the devices and technology that have happened were not part of their lifestyle before going into prison. So making that transition really is tricky. And this you know, young gentleman that wants to help us in this regard, his, and he calls himself an ex-felon, just for your information. So when I use that term, it's only because people that have served time will sometimes refer to themselves that way. Returning citizen is that friendlier, more, gent more gentle term, more accommodating. But there are ex-felons that uh, definitely there's an unease with employers, but the best way to disarm it is to have one of those ex-felons sitting across the table from the employer saying, oh yeah, here are the issues, here's what I experienced, and here's what we're doing to try and preempt those. Very interesting. You know, I, I think about this in a couple ways. As an employer myself, I really do want somebody who's just going to get the job done <laughs> at the end mm. of the day. If they can do the job efficiently and help solve some of my need and, uh, you know, pick up some of the heavy lifting in, in the business, and I can relax about that. I know they're consistent, and I know they take ownership. Once that's been solidified for me, and I don't mean somebody coming in perfect. I mean somebody who's making a, a good attempt to do the right thing. I tend to relax about someone's background. So there probably will be a little bit of unease initially, but I love it that you're providing transitional support. Uh, I didn't know that. That's exciting. There's a stereotype that ex-felons typically wind up in food service businesses, in kitchens, and in places where, for whatever reason, that's an industry that has embraced working with ex-felons. And... We want to learn from them and help break that stereotype, but because they have been successful in that industry, borrow from it, make the segue to, uh, to our industry, which is you know hand-welded products and services. Well, Gary, give us a feel of what you're most excited about at this very moment. At this moment, it's the vision for getting that building up and running. One of the last people I talked to, I showed some pictures of this building. And it has graffiti, and it's pretty rough looking on the outside. And I told him we were having some architects and construction people and engineers to come in and look at it. And he said, well, you're going to need all that help, but don't change a thing on the outside of that building. <laughs> and he said that, and I thought, oh, my gosh. That's... I. I'd always thought we're going to have to clean it up and make it look presentable and professional. And when he said that, I thought that might be awesome. And so just being able to visualize this and, and seeing 
that there's such a history and culture that we want to preserve and kind of be like a secret secret place. Once you go inside, you're blown away. And graffiti is art. It <laughs> so is. So it fits. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. We look forward to catching up and coming down to this building once once you're in and set up, sharing with the listeners and, and our followers uh, well, all about your progress. And we're all pulling for you. You'll be invited to the opening, and we'll want you to bring your chalk and your crayons and your spray paint to work on the outside of the building. <laughs> yeah, man, you don't want me working. On, <laughs> I, I, I miss the art gene somewhere along the way. That and the shopping gene. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm an analyst geek, so <laughs> I'll watch. Just, just bring your camera. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, email this link bonfiresofsocialenterprise.com to a friend and help spread the word. Music by Dan Castle and Thomas Rojo. Portions of this podcast have been provided by Rami Jingress and copywritten 2015 Jingress Global LLC and are disseminated by Flatlands Avenue Productions by exclusive arrangement with Jingress Global LLC.